Power Hour. Coal. Oil. Natural gas. Power Hour, the show where today's top energy experts break down today's top energy issues. No sound bites, no talking points, no nonsense, no BS, no softball questions, no vagueness, just in-depth analysis and ruthless clarity. Here's your host, Alex Epstein. Welcome to Power Hour. I'm your host, Alex Epstein. So most of you have probably seen the movie Gasland, maybe you've seen the movie Promised Land, and certainly all of you have heard about the various criticisms of hydraulic fracturing, which we've talked about on this show many times. But one of the things we haven't talked about are the alleged villains in this alleged evil that's being perpetrated uh, around the country. And the villains are really the people called landmen. These landmen are the people who convince local communities to lease their land and thus to subject themselves to the ravages of hydraulic fracturing and other shale energy technologies. Now, as you probably know, I think this narrative is completely false, and I think that landmen uh, do something extremely, extremely valuable, which is tell people who, um, which is alert people to incredible opportunities to use their land or land below their land to create. Uh, tremendous value. So I thought that on today's show we would bring on a landman and have him explain what he does, how it works, why it's important, and many other things. Uh, so uh, the landman we're going to bring on, uh, he doesn't want us to tell what company he works for, but his name is Joseph Munsey and I've met him. He has emailed me several times and he is affiliated with the, um, I think it's the American Association of Professional Landman. I hope I'm getting that right. But uh, their organization, the AAPL, recently published my essay, The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels. Uh, they seem like good guys. And I told them I wanted to get someone on, and Joseph generously agreed to come. So on the other side, we're going to learn all about landmen. Before we get to the interview, I have a semi-disappointing uh, note to make. Unfortunately, I was recording this episode on my backup Windows machine, and without impugning the good folks at Microsoft or HP, or without impugning them too much, uh, while recording, I had a problem that I've never had recording on my Mac, which is that uh, about halfway through, my questions did not get uh, recorded. So we've managed to salvage Joe's answers, which are I think the most important part and which are really interesting, but you're not going to hear my questions. So you'll just hear a little bit of space in between each of his answers, maybe starting halfway through. So I apologize for that, but I, I thought the content was worthwhile. So I wanted you to have that. And with that, welcome again to Power Hour. Power Hour, because what you don't know about energy can kill you. Here's Alex Epstein. Joining us now is Joe Munsey. Joe, welcome to Power Hour. Uh, thank you, Alex. All right. So as I told you before uh, the show, we've never had a landman on the show. So let's start from the beginning. What is a landman? A uh, landman uh, basically functions as, uh, particularly if you're an independent, for the, uh, for the oil company, uh, oil and gas company. Uh, they procure the oil and gas places. They do the title work. 
Uh, that's typically what a, a, a field landman does. He may do some of the permitting and help with surface damages. And then you have another set of landmen that end up in-house who generally direct the field people to do the acquisition of title or the leases and do the title work. And then you have another whole set of other landmen that actually get involved in cutting deals and doing what they call farmhouse and farming. And on the international scene, it's a whole different world. So uh, you sort of have separate disciplines within the professional field of the landman. Um, just to put it into context, people usually think of upstream, downstream. You know, we know the big producers, the explorers, the refiners. Where in the process are landmen? Why are they so important? Uh, well, they're in the upstream. Uh, with, you know, it's like we say in the business, no lease, no grease. Um, <laughs> if you don't have the rights to drill, you, I don't care how good the prospect looks and how you know, great the geologists are jumping up and down and say, oh, i got to get a drill bit out there and get that thing turned into the right. If you don't have the permission to do it, you can't do anything. So the, the landmen are they actually in the forefront of all exploration as far as new exploration. And then you have all of the operations and maintenance of your land records that you do afterwards. But um, they're the first ones that most people ever see of the, of the oil and gas industry on the upstream part of the business. So let's say, so, uh, that's interesting. So let, let's say that there is a certain play and geologists are excited about it. At what point did the landmen, uh, get involved and how does that affect the decision of the company to, to drill or not to drill? Uh, the first thing we're going to do is bring the land, the land people in and say, we think here's a prospect over in this area. Uh, who owns the mineral rights? And if you're on private property, then the first thing, uh, usually what happens is they say, see if anybody has taken any leases in the last five to ten years. So you do what they call a leasehold takeoff. You check the records. Is it open? Yes, it's open. Okay, let's find out. Um, okay, if it's open, now let's really get what I say, get a larger magnifying glass and start doing your research because now you're going to start taking title back from the present to patent to find out who owns the minerals. And then you have to run that forward because obviously if somebody reserved the minerals in 1950, more than likely that person is deceased and now you have to track down the heirs and you do your investigation. And then you start you, you start your lease acquisition um, uh, part of the, of the, of the land work. And, and so sometimes a landman can do the title and the acquisition, or you may just have people doing your title work, and then turning that uh, title work over to an acquisition landman to go out there to start buying leases. Um, what's... How much do do the what, what kinds of property rights situations do you run into? Like who who usually owns the rights? You never know. I mean, it, you know, uh, I've worked several different states, um, and like I was in Michigan for seven years. I've been in California since 1991. But you have a pretty good idea once you've been in an area to go. Yeah, there's a. Yeah, I know this area doesn't have a lot of split minerals, but I know over there it does. Um, but it's whoever bought that property in the chain of title. It's it's the chain of title. You know, you can go back to the 1800s. In Michigan, you get back to the early 1800s. California, you can only get back to about the 1850s, but the minerals don't start getting split 
to the late 1800s, early 1900s. Um, so uh, I don't want you to have to give away any trade secrets, but is there any way you, you can walk us through what a typical uh, arrangement looks like? Because I imagine you know sometimes you'll have certain people who will want to lease their land and certain people who don't, and I'm wondering how that, that works out in terms of weather and how the drilling goes forward. Well, you have to have it all leased up before you uh, want to start drilling. Uh, you certainly, you know, you can't you can't actually drill without having all your rights secure. And yes, you're going to have some parties that are not going to lease for whatever reason. Um, most people who have reserved the mineral rights, they're on to, um, oh, well, what are you paying now? What's your deal? Okay, I like it, but it's fine. Most of your mineral rights, people who are what we call severed mineral rights, they, they have reserved them. They want to lease them. Um, if you get a surface owner that owns, let's say, half of the minerals or a third of the minerals or a tenth of the minerals, um, you know, that's where sometimes if they're not used to it, you have to educate them to that effect. But I'll, I haven't worked in Michigan for a long time because California is a different ball when it comes to how do you force people into it. But basically in Michigan on a 40-acre unit, you have to lease everybody in that 40-acre unit before you can drill a well. However, if you get 51% of it, you can do a an administrative force pooling and get the other 49% basically involved with the uh, with the drilling. So does that mean they, they get compensated for it? Pardon? Do the other 49% get compensated? Yes. Well, usually they have it, and it may have changed because I haven't worked in Michigan all the for a while. But usually, at the time of the hearing, the the administrative judge is going to say, "Okay, you either lease now, or you pay. You become a partner with them, pay your percentage, or you wait till the well comes in. If it's a dry hole, where everybody walks. Um, if it's a good hole, they're going to give you a penalty. But no, you you're asked to participate in the well. Um, if if you don't participate in the well, then it's like, let's drill. If it's a dry hole, everybody goes home and everybody's happy, except for the producer that, you know, uh, the operator that wanted to find some oil and gas. Uh, but if it is a good well, then they have to, uh, the person that held, holds out has to uh, get into an arrangement with the producer and start sharing the cost of the well. But they'll always throw a penalty on them for, you know, for, uh, for holding out. Generally, up up to that point before you get to that, you're trying to make deals. Um, you know, you get somebody that's, let's say they have one or two mineral acres, and that's that's your holdouts, and you were offering $100 an acre. And you go, you know, $100 an acre doesn't get anybody out of bed for one mineral acre. Mm-hmm. So you may end up with giving them 500 bucks, 1000 bucks, or 2000 bucks just to put it to bed. Because um, if you can do that, then that's cheaper than hiring your attorney to go to a you know, to a hearing and you can do it for 2000 bucks. That's cheaper than spending, well, you know, eight, $10,000 to go to a hearing. So does everyone in an area who owns property automatically hold mineral rights to the subsurface or do they have to go through some sort of uh, registration? Uh, well, you have to go back to what we call the patent holder, and then you run the records. Because at some point in time, other than like in Texas, um, 
or California, where you had the rancho lands that were granted from, you know, like the, the, the Spanish government or the Mexican government, or in Texas, it's the same thing. Um, at some point in time, the United States government, once it became a sovereign nation, you had to get your your patent from them, and then once you receive that, they call that the entryman. Once you look at that document, then that's when really your chain of title has been perfected. Um a lot of times, and I'm going to speak about Michigan because that's where I ran into a lot, um, you would run title and go, "There's the, the patent was never recorded from the government to the first party. And we always had a gentleman in, in Washington that could pull that patent, and then we would get that reported in the county. That actually perfects your chain once you have your patent recorded. But, but other than BLM lands, you know, that is still uh, vested in the United States. Um, after 1914, the government then started reserving all the minerals. Prior to that, when the government sold it to you, that you got the minerals with the property. Um, so what does a typical financial arrangement look like? You mentioned that they got paid something even if there's a dry hole. Uh, you mean upfront money, the bonus money that we offer them? Well, yeah, just the whole thing. I mean, I don't think most people are familiar with the, the payment structures involved. Right. Well, you know, it all depends. I've done, I've done a lot of wildcatting where you're paying a dollar an acre. Then I've also done where you're paying hundreds of dollars an acre, thousands of dollars an acre. Uh, it all depends on, on the area. Uh, typically, you would say, well, this area, you can go out there and buy leases for 15 to $25 an acre, and that's, that's the going rate. Um, if by chance they um, they hit a well and, and you've got some acreage that was left out, let's say an offsetting well or nearby, and you never did put it, you know, you never put that one to bed. Uh, obviously, you're going to be under a lot of pressure to get that person to sign because you now want to drill on that, you know, on that next unit, and they're going to want more money. But typically, you uh, you know. You generally go, well, this is what the going rate is. It'd be 5 bucks an acre, $25 an acre, $100 an acre. Um, you know, in the heyday of the Barnett Shale, you know, it got up to thirty dollars to $35,000 an acre. Now it's back down to typically it's $3,000 an acre. So it just depends on the area. Oh. And and just to be clear, so let's let's say you've got an area of the Barnett Shale and... Ninety percent of the people in the neighbor in the area, I guess, um, you know, in a given portion of it, want to lease, and then ten percent don't. What can what happens if those ten percent just keep holding out? Um, let me go back to now in California because in the Barnett Shale, a lot of that was in house lots, which is what we're used to leasing here in California in your urban setting. Um, there's a provision in the California Public Resource Code that says, let's say you have two or three house lot owners that, you know, and they happen to own the minerals that will not lease to you for whatever for whatever reason. Um, but let's say you have surrounded that particular lot owner with leases. The code says, okay, what are the terms that you've given to these other leases that surround that lot? And you tell, and it's an administrative process, this is what we've given out. Okay, that person now, once you draw your well, um, that's the terms he's going to get. He'll get the same thing. So there's there's a provision. Um, 
and each state is different, Alex. So, um, like, I'll go back to Michigan. Michigan is it's one well per forty acres, and then I think on the deep stuff, it's one well per gas well for six hundred forty acres. And in other states, they're the same way. But each state will tell you know has their own code that says how you actually create the unit, create that drilling unit. So there's places, you know, and I don't remember if I've worked those oil patches before. There are places where you can sort of gerrymander how you put that drilling unit together. Um, but like in a state like Michigan where it's, the, you know, a quarter-quarter section, it's who's ever in that quarter-quarter section. You can't gerrymander that. That's 40 acres. That's the northwest quarter, the northwest quarter going to minerals. You can't, you can't, you can't shift those lines. To, to figure out a different 40-acre configuration. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've said, this is a little bit off topic, I've studied the history of these rights allocations. I know them actually much better uh, in the 1800s than I do uh, in the present. But I always just, I find it very frustrating with subsurface things that that everyone is considered to own it and people can hold it up because I, I don't think it makes any sense that everyone should automatically have rights to what's, you know, 5,000 or 10,000 feet under their ground if they're not doing anything uh, with it. Right. Now, you know, occasionally you can't, you know, occasionally you can't find the people. I mean, I, I've, I've had to work with interest where I'm dealing with point zero 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 one eight six. I've spent thousands of dollars to find these people. They're deceased. You can't find their heirs. And you just set it off and put it into an income account. And then you go, because, the, you know, the, the, the judge is going to look at it and go, how much have you spent? How many hours have you spent on that? I have spent three to $4,000 on outside labor to find these people. Okay, fine. Just put it into an income account. And if the heirs come forward, then you, you know, go ahead and pay them and lease them. So, but that's usually with people that you can't find. Um, but there's people that gonna hold out. It's you know, it's just that's just the business. Um, so what types of are uh, so? Let, let's say you're running into somebody who you end up persuading, but is reluctant at first. What what types of things make people reluctant at the outset? You know, Alex. Sometimes it just comes down to chemistry. You know, I'll go out there, um, and I don't do as much as I do before because I. You know, I sort of point and direct people to do it. But, you know, a lot of times it's just chemistry. You can go out there and, and think that you're getting along with somebody um, and you can't get them to sign. The deal's okay, but, you know, you're just not connecting. You can sort of sense that. And you send another landman out there and they sign it up. And, you know, your pride, you know, you swallow your pride and go, what? Well, you know, it's just chemistry. Um, it's not always, well, it's Shell Oil Company, and I'm representing a small oil company. It, it doesn't, it usually comes down to what, as most people do, they like to do business with the person they're comfortable with. Um, and so when I find some of my landmen who are, you know, I, you know, having problems, I'll say, there's still somebody else at them. It just could be that it's the chemistry and you're not getting along and it has nothing to do with you. You, you know, you two would never get along regardless. So, uh, but it's, it's a variety of reasons why people, you know, why you can't get the deal. Um, when I did work in Michigan, we had a lot of people we called Detroit refugees. They, they had left Detroit, bought a half acre out in the country. And the first thing is, what do you want? You know, it's like, 
I, I let the chores to get away from that. And and a lot of times you spend two or three evenings with them, just going over everything, going over the lease form, and and making them feel comfortable and talk to the gentleman you, you bought the property from. He's been leasing for years. And, you know, here's $100. We'll probably never drill. And most of the time, until the shale place came on, Alex, a lot of times I've leased up thousands and thousands of acres, and it never saw a drill bit um, because of the way the geology and the prospects are. But the shale plays are a little different because, as you know, that shale overlies a vast area of land, and it's pretty consistent that when you drill here, you're going to be able to go to the next unit and drill and find production. Um, so that is a little different. But, yeah, I've reached... I don't know how many thousands of acres that never saw a drill bit. You, you mentioned the issue of chemistry, but what about, uh, I mean, you know, we're in a country where there's a lot of antipathy toward oil and gas, so I imagine that people would have ideological reasons or be afraid. Uh, more so now than I think it was in the early part of my career in the year, early 80s. Um, in the early 80s, there was always the backlash from, you know, when gas, you know, zoomed up to 50 cents or 80 cents a, you know, a gallon. And it was like, you're the, you guys are the, you know, you're the fault of that. And it's like, well, okay, well, you know, let's drill a well and let's see if we can't get more oil producing here. Um, but people are a little more aware now. There's a lot more Internet. You know, you, you throw that all in the mix. Um it's it's just a different environment now, leasing um, with people who are going to you know they're going to form all types of associations to fight you on it, and the land professionals have just got to be able to deal with that. Um, I remember I had a relative. Uh, this was in the early '80s. They were out in Bucks. Is it Bucks County, Pennsylvania? Um, where there was a wildcat play going on, and, you know, that's eastern Pennsylvania, and then you have western Pennsylvania, which was used to landmen running around buying leases. They had never seen landmen, two different worlds, and the company that was trying to put this prospect together had, you know, threw a bunch of guys on there, and within a year, they had spent several million dollars and had about 600 acres leased up, and so they, they said, okay, guys, Get your cowboy boots off. Get your blue jeans off. You got to start going in there with suit and ties. And we have to take a different approach. And they sort of sent all the cowboy landmen away and just everybody dressed up and act like businessmen. And, you know, they were able to put their prospect together. Um, but just, it is different times, Alex. People, you know, if they're against you. They're going to form associations. So speaking of different times, have you seen Gasland? Uh, no, I just, you know, what little I have seen, I just, I just shake my head. I mean, particularly the issue, and I'll speak to this on the, um, uh, the gas that's in the water and the fire coming out of the faucet. I, I ran into that in the early 80s in Macomb County and St. Clair counties, approaching people to lease their property. And they would always say, oh, you know, I can get, actually, sometimes I can light my faucet. Oh, really? They say, is that why you got a lot of the people out in the country, Alex, actually, when they drill their wells, they hit this methane and actually would use it to um, heat their homes or their water heaters. 
and they would be concerned. You guys aren't going to mess up my little gas well. Um, and my response from what the geologist told me was that was just basically glacial drift gas that when the, um, in the last glacier that sort of sliced off Michigan, it just, all of that tundra was turned into methane. But when I started seeing that, Alex, I just said, I ran into that in the 80s. It was no big deal. And it wasn't calls from drilling. It was calls from them drilling water wells and that they were going to get methane. Well, you know, I'm not a... I was I'm not a driller. That's not my air expertise, but I've been around enough, you know, been around um, uh, this business for about 30 years. Um, first of all, you have a lot of people that believe that uh, you go witching for water, as you know, and they think that they can do it with just witching it. And, I, you know, I never believed into that. But it's, you know, it's, it's just like people drilling for their water wells and they get a lot of that egg taste, that sulfur water, which tastes like egg. You know, it's, it's just something that's in the stratum and the fresh water tables. Um, it's just whatever organic material is down there that's decayed, that's created methane, it's also seeping up into the water tables. Now, these wells are less than 200 feet deep. And, you know, at times, people would say, don't mess up my well and don't mess up my water well or my ga- my little gas hole here. And I said, well, I'm going to case it way beyond the fresh water supply because I don't want your fresh water in my well because it messes me up. And that usually always took them back by surprise because it was like, your fresh water and my well doesn't give me good well control. And my water and your fresh water supply means i got to get you a new well. So neither one of us want water in each other's well. I know, and everybody thinks oil companies are these massive companies. Um, I can't cite the source, uh, but the average oil company employees only has 11 people in it, and that usually sort of surprises people because everybody thinks all oil companies are a VP or a shell. Most of my clients at the time in Michigan back in the 80s were small companies with three or four people in it, the geologist, uh, the mapper, the receptionist, maybe another person. And basically, that was the oil company. And these guys knew how to find oil. They just had a nose for finding oil. Um, and, I, you know, and they were highly respected operators. Um, one thing that was great about working for those gentlemen is the fact that they were always concerned about the environment. They always cleaned up after themselves. And they operated their wells, you know, as best as they could to make them look presentable. And... That was always great to have that in your back pocket when you're contacting people to go, yeah, we're representing this particular oil company. Oh, yeah, they're good operators. Um, that, that was always that was always nice. But yeah, people people can't connect the dots from I like my CD player or my iPod, but they can't figure out that that all comes from petroleum and natural gas. Well, I belong to the American Association of Patrolling Land, and I also belong to the uh, Los Angeles Association of Patrolling Land, and I'm the past president, current director, and I hold the uh, publication chair for the local association, and I'm on the publication chair of the American Association of Patrolling Land, and, uh, or professional land, and we used to be called patrolling land. Uh, ethics, ethics is very important to us. Ethics is very important to me. Um, and I used to tell 
you know, my contractors, my contract landmen, there's two things that I want to avoid when I have to go back into an area, and that's bullets and dogs. And, and if I can't go back into that landowner's house and be offered a cup of coffee, then you've done something wrong. So I don't care how you get the lease. You do whatever you have to do to get the lease, but do it honestly. Because more than likely, i got to live in this area and help my client, and you're going to be off in another state. Um, so ethics is very important. Yes, are there landmen that, um, that have ethical problems? Um, I would say the ones that might probably are not members of the AAPL or a local association. Anybody that works for me, I tell them immediately, are you an AAPL or are you in a local association? You're not going to work for me unless you're one of them because I want you to be governed by the ethics of these organizations. Um, you know, there's, it's, the problem with, you know, a lot of leasing is that when you get a bunch of companies out there and, and you know, your landmen are, for the lack of better words, part of the vernacular, slugging it out to get leases, you know, there's going to be some tall stories told. But, um, it, and it's just part of the business that, you know, you can't lie to a landowner. Flat out. My, 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 the company I worked for in Michigan, he, he made this statement. He says, you know what? You may give up a little more to the landowner that the client says, why did you give them those clauses? Why did you give them a little more money? You can always work that out between you and the client. But if you lie to a landowner and you get thrown into court, you lose a client. So you know what? We'll fight with the client that this is what it took to get this deal. But go out and lie and then we lose a client, then, you know, we could all be without a job because our client is what pays the bill. So, you know, every profession, Alex, as you know, has problems with people that, that, that cross the line. And, and you, you can fight that all you want, but every profession has that. Well, obviously, you sign an application that says you will abide by all the rules. And the, et and the ethics. You have to be sponsored by other professionals. Uh, we encourage um, your education. Uh, they have three different types of credentials. Uh, they have an RL, which is a registered landman, and they have an RPL, which is a, a registered professional landman, which is what I am. And then they have a CPL, which is a certified professional landman. And uh, so, uh, obviously, they're just like the legal and, uh, you know, the legal legal and medical. Every year, you have to continue to have your continuous education courses to keep your credentials up. So, they're big on education. They're big on ethics. And every time, you know, you meet, particularly, I, I also chair the education for the West Coast Land Institute, um, and that's an issue we always bring up is continuous education and ethics. And we always invite the president of AAPL. And that's their main theme, education and ethics. So, you know, you don't have to get credentialed. I do it uh, because I think it's important. I, I like to push education. Um, but if you're going to abide within that professional organization, you, you need to, you know, uphold um, 
uh, its, its ethics and its goals. Sure. I, it, it happened, and, you know, um, I got in on the big boom in the early 80s. You know, I uh, I was raised in the uh, steel mill towns of East Chicago and Gary. I, I never knew what a landman was. I mean, I you know, I had no idea that there was people in this profession. Uh, I didn't grow up to be a landman. Now, when you're living in Texas and Oklahoma, you know, in Louisiana, everybody knows what a landman is, but... Um, you know, I'm, I've been 30 years in this business, and my my parent, my my kid, I still have to explain to them what I do for a living because we're not, you know, we're not in an area such as Texas, Oklahoma, where it's very common. Even though California is full of oil, there's not many landmen. But you know, I was a product of get in, we'll train you how to do this, and that does happen. That the companies put the pressure on you to get out there. We need thousands of acres. We need thousands of leases. And, and yes, people get hired. They're not even qualified. Um, and, and it happens in any industry, you know, it happens in the stockbroker. It happens all the time when there's a rush and now it's, can you hold a pencil? Okay, go out there and start talking. And, you know, I one time got caught by a lieutenant, a retired lieutenant colonel on a wildcat play and, um, Tennessee, and he was going to lease me his minerals, and he had a couple of parcels of land, and he says, I just noticed in this lease it said that this lease covers any and all the other lands not described. He says, what, is he, what are you trying to do? And I told myself, I'll never get stumped again by a mineral owner. I started buying all my law books. Come to find out there was a Mother Hubbard clause that was, the intent was that if you had a poor legal description and you had to sort of clean it up, you were getting those little slivers of a poor legal description. You weren't getting, you know, the gentleman's property a mile away or a half mile away or abutting it. Um, uh, but I was always one that, you know what, I want to know what I'm doing and understand your leases, understand oil and gas law, understand title laws. Uh, so I'm probably one of those odd ones that says, you know what, I'm going to always know more than, than, than the mineral owner. So I'm, I'm always fighting. Get educated. Learn what you, you know. Learn what you're talking. About, you know, know what you're talking about, and you need to understand these clauses. Well, you know, I used to talk about tracking two people, and I'm going to go back to my Michigan days uh, when they were always curious. How do you find this? Because oil, it's a mystery. How do you guys find this? What? How do you know it's there? And, and of course. I would always say, Alex, well, we're guaranteed one thing, a dry hoe. And they usually stun people. Well, wait, why would you spend all this money? He said, well, um, as Ray Hunt of Hunt All said, oil is where the good Lord put it. You just have to find it because he's not telling you. Um, so, you know, I would always explain to them. I always took out pictures of what an oil field looks like and what it looks like on a map. I would try to educate people. And one of the things I would say, and by the way, if the formation is a little tight, we do this tracking. And I would explain to what porosity permeability meant. And it was really just the process of if you built a house with these beautiful rooms and then all you had was this little two-foot opening to get between them, you got to open up that door a little more. And go, yeah, I said, that's what tracking does. It opens up the door a little so that you can get in and out. Um, and... And no one ever seemed to bother about it. Um, 
but for whatever reason, and because I don't work that part of the Pennsylvania where it has just become, it is now just hitting California in the last year. And there, Alex, there's just no logic. You, you can't throw logic. Um, I remember quoting an engineer in my newsletter that I published at the Landman Association here in L.A. And it was at the time energy and depth started to school up to, you know, to try, you know, the industry's PR people to try to, you know, fight against some of the junk science. And I remember this gentleman being confronted and the point was, he says, well, you just can't always believe science. And so in my newsletter, I took a poke at him and I said, well, if we can't believe science, let's just go back to creationism. It's like, you it doesn't matter if he's not going to believe science from one side and we're not going to believe his, and then he says we don't believe in science. You, you know, logic has just been totally thrown out when it comes to some of this, these issues. And they're attempting, they're attempting to shut down the city of L.A. right now. If they do that, they're going to, you know, the industry will just lose. The society will lose in, 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 in the city of Los Angeles. They are attempting to shut down fracking but they've also thrown in, you can't acidize, you can't do workovers, you can't do anything. Well, if you did that, you basically shut the industry down. And you, you just can't talk logic. You talk to your blue in the face. You know what? I tend to be someone to just get, you know, get a pocket full of information and use facts to try to go up against, you know, to go up against it. And most, the ones that I've run into, um, in the back of their head, some of it has to do they're afraid of the liability. And so you go, but, well, we're not going to frack here anyway. Um, so is that an issue? Well, if you're not going to frack, okay, we're okay. I think you, if you use, you know, if you use some science and you say this is the way it is, most people can can get over it. Um, I haven't I haven't talked to some of my colleagues here lately in Pennsylvania. I just know that when we do, we you know we just sort of moan and groan. I just don't say, well, what are you doing to combat it? Um, I guess I should because it'd be interesting interesting to see how they're doing. Um, definitely. Alex, as you may be aware, sometimes the oil and gas industry is its worst enemy when it comes to public affairs and public relations. And we just weren't in out in the forefront to come out with the right um, with the right message. I think the message is getting across now, but you know. I look at it this way. They tell one big lie, one misinformation. We all rush over there to, you know, to, to, to shoot it down. And, and they're already on the other side of town, you know, coming up with other misinformation. By the time you clean this up, you go, Oh, shoot, they're over there. Well, let's rush over there. It's, it's, we've never been a proactive industry. But a lot of that has to do is that when I was given a prospect, I wasn't allowed to tell anybody other than my team who were we working for and where I was at. Um, I went into the courthouse. If I knew my competition was there, I made sure he didn't look over my shoulders to see what I was doing because I didn't want him to go tell his company, hey, let's bust into their play. And so that 
that sort of breeds that we're all doing this. This is a secret thing. Uh, don't tell anybody where you're at. Don't tell who your client is. Uh, some of the guys that worked for me, they never knew who the client was because we took them in our names. And, and unless they went back to check the assignment, they never knew who they were leasing for. Um, so, you know, the industry, I think, sometimes is it's, has been its own worst enemy when it comes to public affairs and public relations. But I will ask some of my colleagues in Pennsylvania, now, what are you guys really doing out there? I know it's got to be tough. But, you know, some of the, some of the um, stuff I've seen on YouTube and you just look at it and you go, how do you, how do you fight that? Right. Well, you know, Alex, I had been in the insurance industry prior to this. I had a real estate background in insurance. And, you know, when you sell insurance, you tell a good story, you have pictures, you lay it out. I took those same skills and I developed my own presentation because I was, seemed like those first four or five years, I was always doing wildcat leasing. And I was going to areas where no one had ever seen landman. Like, who are you? What? Or, you know. They thought a lot of it was a novelty to them. Um, I put together um, a picture for these people. I told them a story. I would lay my many times. Landman would go, "Why are you explaining the lease to these people? Never show it to them. Just get them to sign it. Tell them we're paying this and be out your way." I said, "That's not how I operate. I operate. Um, I I don't mind explaining them to them if they have questions." Um, but a lot of landmen will now do that because it's like, well, we're, you know, you know, you're paying them 300 bucks, sign the lease, get out the door as fast as you can. Um, I guess if I was in that situation, I would probably have already put together a presentation and a story that would have said, this is what hydraulic tracking is. This is what it looks like. This is what we're doing. Um, the reason why the water can't, can't surface up other than maybe through a wellboard that was if that was to ever happen, is the fact is that, that if the water can, you know, seep through the through the strata, then why isn't the oil? I mean, the first thing is, the reason why the oil hasn't seeped to the surface is there's a cap rock. And it's that cap rock that's keeping it, because that oil wants to come to the surface. So, um, I would have already put together something myself, because that's just how I'm, you know, that's just how I'm put together, is have a presentation that that's the issue, get some facts, Show them how it's done, so it's not a it's not a mystery. The, you know, one of the biggest things I would say: here's the oil and gas leases we're going to go over. It's not going to bite you. Oh, oh, I was in life insurance and health insurance sales. You know, and the life insurance uh, way back then, thirty five years ago, they give you these nice pamphlets. You know, they have the scare pictures on there. You know, the look. You know, the mother. You know in tears because the husband died, what am I going to do? And you had pictures and, the, you know, you know all, the, all the hot buttons as to why you should buy life insurance or you should have health insurance. So I just looked at that and said, that's a presentation. So that's what I put together. I had pictures of geology to show people, this is how we find oil. It, it, it is a mystery. We shoot seismic. See how this seismic is shot? And I had pictures of how they shoot the seismic. Then I would relate to, like, see... What they're looking for is this structure here, a, a stratigraphic structure. This is what it looks in the ground. You know, people, particularly people who had never leaked before, 
then, you know, plus I was, uh, to me, I was trying, I was getting credibility. Uh, then I would go into the five implied covenants of the lease and said, okay, here's an overall view of the lease. Are you understanding what I'm saying? And and if they said, well, let's go deeper into it. So, Absolutely. Let's go through this part. That's, you know, this is a summary of the clause. I'm not an attorney, but this is a summary of the clause. And, and since you have a half acre, we're never going to come on your property. I'm going to go ahead and say, let's just restrict everything I just said about operations. We won't do anything with your officer prior consent. I said, now I've, I've cut my knees off. I can't do any operations without your prior consent because I'm going to, my drill site's not even on your property. I'm doing it over here. I just need you to be in my pool. So I, if I would have been out there starting to, to, to run up against this, I, personally, I would have put together a story and said, this is how you have to operate, folks. This this is a new this is a new era, and there's disinformation out there. You guys better start putting the story together, and let's get our facts together so we can, you know, here's how it works. Got it. All right. Well, we are are running out of time. Any anything else that I didn't think of that people should know about the world of land men or of the world of oil and gas? Oh well, I tell you what, it's interesting to go out there. I have been, been I, I have been in some interesting places in oil business, you know, because you're walking out from knowing the price of hogs, the price of you know what's, what's corn going for, what fertilizers goes for. Walking into a doctor's office because he owns a mineral rights, and now you got to relate to him. So, you know, you've got to be able to relate from anyone, anyone from a hog farmer to a professional. Uh, and in between, and be able to, you know, it's it's a people business, and there are those that don't like that. There are those landmen that says, "Don't let me talk to people. Keep me in the courthouse. I'll run your title. I'll do your permitting." Uh, but you know, I don't want to go out there and get ink. And then there's guys that said, "Don't even get me in a courthouse. Just let me talk to people because that's my greatest strength." So, you know, landmen, there's a whole diverse discipline of landmen, and um, I've enjoyed it. I, 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 I love the oil business. I love the land business. All right. Well, thanks so much for coming on. I, I learned a lot, and I'm sure the listeners uh, did too. Okay. Well, thank you, Alex. Nice talking to you again. You too. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks to Joe Munzee for coming on the show. Uh, I learned a lot. I hope you did too. Uh, I think one of the things that, that struck me, and I think I mentioned it at the time, was just how misrepresented uh, the nature of the subsurface is and how it used to just be common sense that things like methane getting into your water, uh, that was just a normal occurrence because that's something that, that happened because of just the way the, the relevant parts of nature are constituted. And I think the fact that, that someone lighting his water on fire becomes a national sensation is an illustration of the fact that we get no real education about industrial civilization, how it works, certainly what its value is, but even just what nature was like before and what nature is like after. And without that context, you can get away with just always looking at risks, whether real or alleged, and then defining the technology by the risks, but without looking at the risks of not using it 
And to understand those, you need to understand what is it like in the absence of this technology? What is in nature life like absent human action, absent human development? And that's something that is just not uh, discussed. All right, that's, that'll be all for this week. Uh, make sure to order your copy of The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels. Pre-order it. Pre-order as many as you can. The more pre-orders we get, the more the book will be uh, promoted. And you can get that on Amazon.com. Just search The Moral Case for uh, Fossil Fuels. Uh, as always, make sure to sign up for our email newsletter. If you're not on it already, go to industrialprogress.com. Uh, uh, also, social media, facebook.com slash the pursuit of energy, facebook.com slash I love fossil fuels, and twitter.com slash Alex Epstein. Uh, again, as always, if you have any questions, comments, love mail, or hate mail, you can email me at alex at alexepstein.com. Uh, Next week, we will be back with another great topic, another great guest. Until then, I'm Alex Epstein. This has been Power Hour. Power Hour. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of energy. Power Hour. The antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues.